Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters. And since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 493. It is March 17th, 2022. This is a continuation of a time for a memorial. And I'm going to read three stories related to the pandemic, uh, two of which are obituaries, and one is a celebration of life. And I'm going to start that now. Usually in COVID calls in every episode, I read the mortality statistics presented by the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. And starting pretty early in the pandemic, I also read an obituary in every episode. And, and um, it was important to do that and also became important, something that guests actually commented on a lot, that um, they appreciated that. And it actually became a touchstone for many of our conversations throughout the COVID call series. So I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Europe's oldest person survives COVID just before 117th birthday. This appeared February 9th, 2021 in the BBC. Lucille Randon, who took the name of Sister Andre in 1944, tested positive for coronavirus on January 16th, 2021, but didn't develop any symptoms. She told local media, she didn't even realize I had it. She isolated separately from other residents in her retirement home in Toulon in southern France, but is now considered fully recovered. Sister Andre, who's blind and uses a wheelchair, is now looking forward to celebrating her birthday although she's going to mark the occasion with a smaller group of residents than usual. She's been very lucky, David Tavella, spokesman for the St. Catherine Loubre retirement home, said. He told Var Martin newspaper, she didn't ask me about her health, but about her habits. For example, she wanted to know if meal or bedtime schedules would change. She showed no fear of the disease. On the other hand, she was very concerned about the other residents. Sister Andre was born on February 11th, 1904. As well as being Europe's oldest person, she's also the second oldest living person in the world, according to the Gerontology Research Group's World Supercentenarian Rankings List. When asked by French broadcaster BFM if she was scared of having COVID, Sister Andre said, no, I wasn't scared because I wasn't scared to die. I'm happy to be with you, she said, but I would wish to be somewhere else to join my big brother and my grandfather and my grandmother. The story is, before his death, my grandfather returned to the language of Ukraine. This was written by Irina Rain and appeared March 3rd, 2022 in the Los Angeles Times. At the end of his life, before he died of COVID-19 in 2020, my grandfather decided he would speak only Ukrainian. My maternal grandparents immigrated to New York in 1987 from Smarinka, a city in southeastern Ukraine, five hours from Kyiv. My parents and I had come to the U.S. six years prior, but they were holding on to the promise of the Soviet Union as home, despite the many, many ways that nation told my Jewish World War II veteran grandfather that he didn't matter. After surviving the wartime Jewish ghetto, he was conscripted at 17 into the Soviet Army where he served through the end of the war, joining in victory celebrations after the Battle of Berlin. Later, as an agronomist, 
He was sentenced by the Soviet government to a year of labor for growing vegetables such as beets instead of the state-sanctioned state corn. Even after the Chernobyl disaster, my grandparents stayed in the Soviet Union until they were given official permission to join us. At the airport, Soviet officials stripped him of his war medals. When they arrived in the United States, my grandfather was suspicious of America's ease, its squishy bread, its industrial food complex. He started his own garden in my parents' backyard in New Jersey, growing garlic, sorrel, and beefsteak tomatoes. He fished for bass in the Oradell Reservoir of the Hackensack River. His rhapsodies on the nutritional benefits of protein were legendary in our family. He thought religion was a fiction, but just in case, God should probably not be ruled out entirely. He spoke about watching his neighbors get shot in the ghetto as a 17-year-old boy and whispered to me that he'd managed to save a cyanide pill from his time in the army and wouldn't hesitate to use it in case things got bad again. As an artillerist in the army, he found mementos of slain Soviet soldiers to send home to their families. The older he got, the more my grandfather emphasized his ghetto and war stories, hoping that I would write about them someday, but it was hard to listen to tales of genocide at joyous family get-togethers. Sometimes I couldn't help but tune him out. As he got older and began showing signs of dementia, my grandfather no longer spoke about the cyanide pill, although he did scare us in other ways, assaulting the bus driver who drove him to his senior care center, marching to the train station in the middle of the night and threatening to jump in front of a train. When, for his overnight safety, the door to his apartment was secured, he climbed out of his kitchen window. Because my Ukrainian-born mother had married my Moscow-born father, and we had lived in Moscow, and because Russian was a required language in Ukrainian schools, our family spoke to one another exclusively in Russian, but Yiddish was the only language my grandfather trusted. His only true home was soil, the birthplace of human sustenance. And suddenly, three years ago, when in his mid-90s, my grandfather started responding to us solely in Ukrainian. We had no idea what happened. Was it due to spending his days with a Ukrainian healthcare aide? Was he displaying spiritual fealty to the bittersweet land of his difficult life? Had he survived COVID, he would be watching the invasion footage on television and weeping seeing yet another war in his lifetime, one half of his family attacking the other. He might have told me in Ukrainian that it was finally time to find the cyanide pill, but I wouldn't have understood him, even if I ever did. The story was, before his death, my grandfather returned to the language of Ukraine by Irina Rain, appeared March 3rd, 2022, in the Los Angeles Times. I'd like to read one more story as part of this Time for a Memorial episode of COVID Calls. The headline is Lenilda Dos Santos left her home in rural Amazonia, part of a South American exodus driven by a coronavirus era depression. This was written by Tom Phillips and appeared October 18th, 2021 in The Guardian. As coronavirus tore through the Valley of Paradise, a farm-flanked backwater in the Brazilian Amazon, Lenilda dos Santos, a nurse technician, stood on the front line, clutching hands most feared to touch. She was a warrior during the pandemic, said Lucinade Oliveira, 
a friend and colleague at the front line, a friend and colleague at the town's small understaffed hospital. She'd say, if we have to die, we'll die, but we must fight. But one morning in early August, as the two women sat at the entrance to their COVID ward, Lenilda announced she was leaving. When? Lucinade asked her friend. Soon, Lenilda replied, adding words of reassurance. I'll be back. Two days later, Lenilda, 49, headed out of town, past a sculpture of a Bible open at Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, the inscription reads. She never returned. Five weeks later, and more than 4,000 miles north, U.S. Border Patrol agents found Manilda's body in the desert near the town of Deming, New Mexico. She was curled up by a mesquite bush, wearing light brown tactical boots and army fatigues, and had little with her but a blue Brazilian passport tucked into a waste bag. The incident report said she was positioned as if she was lying down on her right side, legs slightly bent and her hands covering her face. Captain Michael Brown, one of the law enforcement officers on the scene, said, I'll be honest with you, this particular case probably hit me harder than any other case that I've had with the migrants out in the desert. My heart just ached for her. The nature of Lenilda's demise was not the only thing that shocked the officer. Her nationality was also unusual in a region where most crossers are from Mexico or Central America. This was the first Brazilian person I'd encountered alive or dead, said Brown, who has worked on the U.S.-Mexico border for 26 years. It obviously says that the conditions where she is from are getting just as bad as they are everywhere else. Coronavirus-era depression is driving a new perilous exodus from South America as middle and lower middle class families flee the financial hardship, unemployment, and inflation wrought by the health crisis. The world region that took the greatest hit to a total economic output in 2020 was Latin America, a 7% decline. That's roughly what you would expect from a year of civil war in a typical country, said Michael Clemens, a migration expert at the Center for Global Development. Other factors included the U.S. recovery, the choking off of most lawful migration channels under Donald Trump, and the mistaken belief among migrants that Joe Biden would be less hostile than his predecessor. Many of those abandoning South America are Haitians who fled to countries such as Brazil and Chile after their homeland was hit by a deadly earthquake in 2010. COVID has uprooted them again, with more than 90,000 Haitians marching through the Darien Gap, a treacherous jungle passage between Colombia and Panama toward the U.S. this year. But a growing number of South Americans are also on the move. More than 46,000 Brazilians were detained at the U.S. southern border between October 2020 and August of 2021, when Anilda began her final journey, compared with fewer than 18,000 in 2019 and only 284 a decade earlier. The number of Ecuadorians has also soared, with nearly 89,000 apprehended over the same period compared with about 13,000 in 2019. It's hard to overestimate how much for some people this was a livelihood-destroying recession. COVID has set everything back, said Andrew Seeley, the president of the Washington-based Migration Policy Institute. This has really taken us 30 or 40 years back to a time when the economies in South America were really fragile. Relatives say Lenilda, who spent three years working as a cleaner in Columbus, Ohio, from 2004 to 2007, 
began plotting her escape from Brazil earlier this year after a grueling stint battling COVID at the hospital for just 1,100 reis, or about 216 US dollars a month. What can you do with 1,100 reis? asked her daughter, Jennifer Oliveira dos Santos, as she sat on the veranda of her mother's bungalow on Paradise Avenue, a few doors down from the hospital. Jennifer, who's 28, said her mother had planned to return to Ohio, where she still had friends and family to help fund her two daughters through college. In April, Renilda flew to Mexico and surrendered to U.S. immigration officials near the town of Mexicali, hoping they would allow her to stay while her asylum request was processed. Instead, she was arrested and spent three months in a warehouse-like Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Calexico before being deported to Brazil in July. It was pretty cruel, said her brother, Lessi Pereira, but Linilda was determined to return. Less than a month later, on the 12th of August, she left Val do Pariso for a second time. She boarded a plane to Mexico City after agreeing to pay smugglers $25,000 to guide her through the desert from Ascension in the Mexican state of Chihuahua to a safe house in Deming. She said it would take two days and two nights because it's a long way, over 50 kilometers, Jennifer said. In the early hours of Monday, 6th of September, Lenilda set off towards the U.S. border with three childhood friends and a smuggler. She was really confident. She just seemed so happy, said Jennifer, who remembered being assured that by Thursday her mother would have arrived. Things quickly went wrong, however, as the group trudged north through mountainous terrain in what Brown said would have been punishing conditions. From July to the middle of September is monsoon season for us, so we're dealing with summer desert temperatures anywhere from mid-90s up, and I'm guessing probably 70% humidity or more, he said. So it was extraordinarily hot. Brown suspects Lenilda fell behind as a result of exhaustion and dehydration. There was no water found anywhere near her, and in the best circumstances in this area, at that time of year and temperature, she wouldn't have lasted any more than three days tops without water. By Monday afternoon, Lenilda's family believed she had been abandoned as her companions pressed on. Panicked, she turned on her mobile phone to ask relatives for help. Ask them to bring me some water, Lessie remembered his sister begging in a WhatsApp voice message. I'm dying of thirst. Lenilda shared her live location, and over the coming hours, distraught relatives thousands of miles away in the Amazon tracked her movements across a desolate outback inhabited mostly by coyotes, cattle, and gophers. Then, at 3.08 p.m. local time on Tuesday, the orange circle marking Lenilda's position ceased to move. That was the moment we realized she hadn't made it, Lessie said. She saved so many lives only to go off to Mexico and lose her own. It would take police another eight days to locate Lenilda's remains. Always a horrible thing to find. Your heart goes out to them. They're just trying to come across and find a new life, said Brown, who believed the victim had come tantalizingly close to finding help. Had she made it 400 yards north, she probably could have been able to make contact with somebody who lives in a caravan. Lenilda's death has rattled Valdoparizo, a close-knit farming community that was itself founded by migrants when Brazil's military dictatorship bulldozed a highway through the rainforest 50 years ago. A black ribbon was hung at the hospital's entrance in recognition of Lenilda's services during the pandemic. 
She was so loved, said Pereira. The whole town is in mourning. He urged Brazilians to consider the dangers of joining the exodus. My sister, poor thing, she went chasing a dream, but that dream was interrupted. In our dreams, just look at what has happened to them now. But as South America reels from COVID, such pleas appear likely to fall on deaf ears. I know six or seven couples who went last week, all of them with their kids, even after what happened, said Jennifer, who believes soaring food and fuel prices partly explain why so many are leaving. Town's now empty COVID unit, Lucinade recalled trying to talk Lenilda out of going. The pair had dreamed of opening a wound clinic together once Lenilda, who would have turned 50 this week, returned home. Oh, my friend, Lucinade murmured, glancing up at the ceiling with incredulous bloodshot eyes. The article was Lenilda dos Santos left her home in rural Amazonia, part of a South American exodus driven by a coronavirus era depression. It appeared October 18th, 2021 in The Guardian, written by Tom Phillips. Thanks for joining this special episode as part of the Restoring Memory Collection of COVID Calls episodes. And we will see you next time on COVID Calls.